Hey friends, welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. We hope you enjoy what you're listening to, and may you find peace and grace in all the words that are before you. Amen. All right, uh, so we will be in Mark 9 today. You're welcome to turn there, um, and as you turn there, we've been in this book, in the in the Gospel of Mark, for quite some time now, uh, and we're only in Mark 9, so yay. Um <laughs> But I think it's important for us to be reminded of something about the disciples, because a lot of this is talking about Jesus and his interaction with his disciples, um, these followers of Jesus. These were young men, probably around the age of 18 to 25 years old, more than likely. There may have been a few older ones and a smattering of younger ones, but these were young men for the most part. They had spent their whole lives reading about and studying about and learning about God's laws as written in the Torah. The Torah is the the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And they have been learning about God's prophets, the prophets who spoke. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Daniel, different prophets who spoke about God's truth to the people of Israel. What they understood was what they studied and how it was interpreted by their teachers. And their lens from how they studied was, was interpreted in that way. They, they, they brought forth this, this specific lens of how they saw the world and how they interacted within the world. So for these men to begin to grasp at this point that their rabbi is the Messiah, or probably the Messiah, the Messiah meant God's chosen rescuer, there were very specific expectations that went alongside that piece of information. And so the, the Messiah for the people that were, that the disciples, that the Messiah, their expectation for the Messiah was that it was going to be, he was going to be some sort of warrior that would make Israel great again, who would overthrow Israel's enemies by waging some sort of brutal war against Rome or against Greece or against Babylon or Assyria or Egypt or whatever superpower held Israel underneath this oppressive sort of a boot. So for the disciples to wonder if Jesus might be the Messiah, this would come with a sort of celebration in their mind, right? Like some sort of future esteem to be associated with the Messiah. They probably believed that they hit the cosmic lottery jackpot to be associated with the Messiah. Like, this is the dream come true. This is the way to be remembered, right? This is the way to gain status and have the best seat of honor for whatever, wherever they went and whatever experience they ever had. They probably wanted to know who would be the greatest disciple so that person's name would get written next to their Messiah's name forever. Like if you think of David, King David in the Bible, oftentimes when we think of King David, the name that we associate with David is Jonathan. I know Bathsheba was what you guys were thinking about, but we think of David and Jonathan. Jonathan was like his best friend. He was the greatest person in David's book. And I bet the disciples, when thinking about Jesus as their Messiah, they probably wanted to know which one would be Jesus' Jonathan when Jesus took over the world and kicked Rome out. When our worldview is Soaked in one perspective, it is really difficult to see anything else. So when Jesus was saying to them early on, uh, you know, what it looks like to care for your enemies, to pray for your enemies, 
to bless those who persecute you, to give your enemy your extra coat or that cup of cold water or that loaf of bread. I wonder if the disciples remembered these words of Jesus once they began to understand that he was their rescuer or if loving their enemy was just a nice sentiment. So to hear Jesus say he was going to be killed by this enemy that the whole time he's saying, love your enemies, how does this fit into the disciples' worldview? So turn with me to Mark, actually turn with me to Mark 8 first. Because we see, Mark has this way of sandwiching things where he wants to make a a deeper point. I'm not going to get into that too much, but it is interesting here because in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, no, actually let's go to, 29. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus uh, asked his disciples, he says, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's response to Jesus as the Messiah was to say, no, 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 no. You can't die. That doesn't fit in my entire worldview. You are absolutely wrong, Peter says. And that's kind of where it ends. No no one's asking Jesus, well, can you clarify that? I need some more information. What do you mean by that? And then a few days pass, it says six days later, Jesus took, in verse 2 of 9, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, they go up to that mountain, the transfiguration happens, and then they come down from the mountain. Last week we looked at Jesus healing the boy who was possessed by an impure spirit and how the father advocated for for his son. Beautiful passage. And then we get to verse 30, and this is where we're going to camp out today. So it says in verse 30 of chapter 9, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in that house, he asked them, what were you guys arguing about on the road? But they had kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And jump down to chapter 10, and we'll be in 13 to 16 as well. It says, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. All right. 
So I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I've heard this passage of scripture preached on, I've heard it from the angle of what it meant for the disciples of Jesus to approach God like a child. And I've always heard it from that angle, like, like with the innocence of a child, like as disciples of Jesus, we get to approach God with the same kind of innocence as a child would approach their parent, or the curiosity of a child, or the, the simple trust, the joy and excitement a child has without the baggage piled on their back over the years lived on this earth that we all carry around as adults. <laughs> And while this perspective of being like a child is very true and it's good and it's a really important reminder, having like having the joy of the kingdom like a child would have or having the simplicity of trust in God, that is not my experience with children most of the time. <laughs> it just isn't. Like children, if you notice, children never need to be taught to take the largest cookie on the plate. They don't need to be like, oh, what, am I allowed? Are you sure? Should I do that? I don't know. Other people might be wanting that cookie. They'll just take it without a second thought. They never need to be taught to hoard all their toys and carry them all with them at all the times when their friends are over to play because they're mine and I don't want to share them. Kids don't need to be taught to keep their stuff for themselves. Kids are really good at saying mine and saying no and throwing themselves on the ground when they're really tired or throwing their food against the wall when they don't want to eat that food because you made the thing that they really hate. Like being polite and having good manners and allowing others to go before them in line and sharing their stuff isn't something that comes naturally for most kids. And while I don't know what the common behaviorisms of uh, what was what was going on with first century children were. Maybe they were like the most well-behaved kids. They just came out of the womb as like perfect. I don't know. I doubt that because I, I, I see that there's, there's some traits that happen within children that are happening regardless of what era you're born into. It's just part of who we are, right? What I do know about this culture that was happening during this time is that children were considered a liability. They weren't considered valuable until they passed a certain age, an age where, okay, you're going to make it a few years. You're going to like live through this. We'll give you, we'll give you the better food because it looks like you're thriving here. Like kids were considered something of a liability. Unless the children were your own children, most people didn't care for other people's kids. There were some areas in this, in this space, which actually the area that they're in, in Capernaum is one of these places uh, where there was, uh, and a few of the disciples were born and raised in this area of Capernaum, where there was more of a communal responsibility for the children, where grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles all kind of raised each other's kids. This was very few and far between. It was very rare to find anybody caring for children that, you were, that were not born from you. Children had zero status. They would bring no value to anyone at their young age. Children had nothing to offer anyone, they, so, so no one could gain anything from their presence. And yet Jesus uses children as the example of what discipleship looks like in its best state. So why would he do this? What do kids have to offer? <laughs> what can they teach us? Nothing. Kids have nothing to offer. And I think that that's true. I think 
part of what Jesus is getting at is that following Jesus, the way of Jesus, the kingdom of God, will always lead you into the more difficult places and difficult people of the world, not towards a place of greatness. Following Jesus often leads us to those marginalized and lowly places instead of to places of prestige. And in the first century, there really wasn't a middle-class group of people. There were the crazy wealthy, the high wealthy people and, and who, whose goal was to actually grow in wealth and status. And then there were the very poor among them in their midst. And relationships were often built on this sense of upward mobility where people wanted to know you only if you would give them a foothold towards something better. How will you make my life better? Okay, if you're going to make my life better, I will be in a relationship with you. I will see this as a beneficial sort of a space. And I think this is still true for us today. Like how many of us have people in our lives that we can point to who like kind of made it? in some sort of famous way, like that person you went to high school with like became an actor, and you're like, I knew that guy. I do this all the time. Jason knew this guy who was like in, in high school. They, they went to high school together, and he became like this really famous He died. It was really sad. But um, Paul Walker. So, I'll, so I'll, like, I'll name drop that every once in a while, that Jason was friends with Paul Walker. I know. I know. It was very sad. It was very sad. But, you know, we'll do that, like like either somebody we know who becomes an actor or who, or who is like a politician of some sort or, or is famous for something. We often drop names or we reach out or we want to be seen by them in some way. We want to be known for something great, even if it's just by association. And this was true for the disciples. It was true for them then. It's true for us today. We all search for heroes to follow. We all want to be associated with the mighty and the popular and the important people. We saddle up to the slightly famous, hoping some of their fame might rub up on us. And and we want to know if we've made the cut. Are we actually one of their good friends? I think the disciples wanted to know if they made the cut with Jesus as well. They wanted to prove to each other who was most loved and who was most valued and who was most important And sometimes what happens is we get our sense of worth based on our belief of another's less worthiness. So the less worthy we make them out to feel or seem to be, or we talk bad about them, the more worthy we start to feel. It's all very yucky. It's all very not Jesus-like. But the kingdom of God that we see, the kingdom of God reverses the world's ideas of greatness. Christianity, if you look at the early church, it began with a group of people from opposite sides of the tracks. You've got the people who are incredibly wealthy, these wealthy folks who had experienced the transformative love of Jesus Christ because of God, because of Jesus, and they couldn't live the way they lived any longer. They still owned their huge homes. They still had lavish wealth. But instead of keeping it for themselves, instead of seeing as this is my stuff and this is my space and this is my opportunities today, instead of seeing it as theirs, they opened it up for everybody. They invited people in those big wealthy houses with wealthy families, became the house churches to where it was filled with poor and marginalized people. 
all together, worshiping God together. Those homes were housing churches. The, the, the tables were housing meals. People would stay the night if the gathering went on too long. It was somebody, it was God's house, even though it was something that somebody bought on their own. It was now God's, to be used for God's glory. And these gatherings were where the poor families are inside the wealthy families' homes, and there's single people, and there's widows, and there's children in the church running through people's legs, and there's handicapped and disabled and highly educated, and those who couldn't read at all, together worshiping God in the midst of their different upbringings and their different worldviews and their different levels of status. They were unified around Jesus and around God's kingdom, and around sharing the good news of God's love for all people. And it was completely opposite from the world's standards of what greatness looked like and what success looked like. For the early church, those, those, those few years that we can look at, I mean, really the early church before the Roman Emperor Constantine made Christianity into, a, into an official state religion about 300 years after Jesus, This early church was living into a childlike experience where upward mobility, where status grabbing, and where relationships based on bragging rights didn't define them. And I think this is what it means when Jesus invited his disciples to receive God's kingdom like a child. We're not looking to be the best in this space. We're looking to share our stuff and to honor God together. But I think another reason that Jesus used children as a metaphor for his disciples is that children aren't afraid to ask questions. Do we have a, do we have a video, Jay? Is that going to work? Sweet. We've got a little video. It's, it's adorable. If it works. remember anything else from today just know how cute he is okay um no kids are really good at asking questions right they'll ask why a thousand times they are so good they have thousands of questions in their mind as they're trying to understand the world around them how to interact with the world how to understand everything that's going on kids stay curious they know when things aren't quite right when things aren't fair And they won't keep this truth to themselves or stay quiet about injustice because they don't want to seem rude or step on anybody's toes. Children are never afraid to rock the boat. Never. And I think that's what we see here in this passage. We see the disciples who were afraid to rock the boat. I think it was a boat they created for themselves. 
but they were still afraid of rocking it. They didn't want to seem stupid or wrong or misguided, so they kept quiet. And maybe every time that Jesus spoke about what his future looked like, they were so afraid to ask those clarifying questions because it wouldn't fit in their worldview or paradigm that they always had known. A Messiah shouldn't suffer and be killed. How could God be trustworthy when God's Messiah, the chosen rescuer, was supposed to be killed? How do we trust God if that is what the future holds? Turn me back to Mark 9. It says in uh, 31, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he, what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Sometimes when we don't ask the questions we need to clarify our confusion, then oftentimes we avoid going any deeper in our understanding. We keep everything really shallow so we don't rock the boat that we have built around ourselves. High school math for me was really hard. (laughs) It was really hard for me. I barely got by. I was always really confused by the concepts. and But it was mainly because I was really scared to ask the teacher any questions. I didn't want to seem dumb or unintelligent. I was homeschooled until high school, and so I felt like I didn't have the best education before then. So I felt behind from the minute I got there. And I didn't want to be the only person who didn't understand it. So I remained silent, and I still don't know my times tables. I can get by a little bit, but most of the time I want to use a calculator, and my kids totally know it. (laughs) And you know what? I just figure you can't be good at everything, so it's fine. It's fine now. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? But you know, if I'd only asked for help, if I'd only spoken up and asked more for more examples or for her to clarify that, that concept for me, you know? I think when we avoid asking questions that we don't understand, we often avoid the depth that can come from the asking. The disciples were afraid to ask Jesus what he meant about being handed over, about being killed, and being raised again. And when we pretend that we don't have any questions, then oftentimes we begin to argue among ourselves for a place of honor and privilege because we're so afraid we actually don't know anything. It's our way of getting to the top and standing on other people to get there. And I think that many of our, of our avoiding asking questions comes from a place of fear because we're afraid of the answer and how the answer might knock down our understanding of God that we've always had. For me, when I begin to see how women aren't meant to stay silent in the church, as I was taught my growing up as a child, growing up in the church, I, it, it created more questions about other misunderstandings I had about God and the Bible. But it was something I had to dig into for me to get to where I am today, no matter how scary that may have been. And for the disciples, for the disciples, they needed, at that point in their lives, they needed a God who could conquer their enemies and who could make their names great and give them status and a place of importance, not a God who suffers and dies. They couldn't even handle the time to ask the questions. 
And when we don't encourage questions, we focus on who is more right, and we argue about who is more right. What we see this, we see this in religious circles all the time, where questions are discouraged, or we throw platitudes at any questions that come up because we're so afraid that we might not have the right answer, or we don't know if the answer will be good enough. And what I see in this passage that we read is that they are afraid to ask. And then it says that Jesus, they like they keep walking. They just keep walking. Jesus isn't like, do you guys understand what I'm saying? Like, do you need some clarification here? Like, can I go a little deeper for you? It seems like you're a little confused. Jesus just allows the silence to be without answering anything. He knows that they're struggling. He knows they're trying to understand. And, and I think that Jesus gives that space for the disciples to avoid or process what he said. And then he later comes back and he says, what were you guys arguing about? What were you guys talking about on the road? What were you guys talking about while we were, ta- while we were walking? And he gives them that space to process, and then he later opens it up to see what they were discussing. He opens the conversation back up. He allows for the discomfort and allows for the awkwardness and invites them to see from a different angle, like this childlike perspective where the curiosity and the questions are always welcomed. So before we go into our time of response, I want to kind of spend some time in that sort of childlike space that Jesus invited the disciples into. I want us to think about the questions that we've felt have been silenced or shamed away or brushed away. Like the questions that um, many of us have, thousands of questions about, like a child, about areas of faith or areas of the Bible or Jesus or what it means to be a Christian. And they remain in our minds um, in a way that is just, we're just so nervous. We're so afraid of, of, of actually speaking them out. We're afraid of naming them because we might be seen as unfaithful, right? Or not strong enough of a Christian. Or it would have, would have seen as too doubting. Or we're afraid of being rejected by our tribe if we're actually honest. And I think what Jesus is inviting his disciples into is to name those questions, to name those fears and those doubts and those uncertainties, and to allow them to just stay. I don't think Jesus always answered them very well. Oftentimes he answered their questions with a parable or with another question. He's like, so you've got a question, here's one back at you now. And I think that's okay. But I think if we approach Jesus and the Bible and church and relationship with a spirit of fear, for fear of being rejected or seen as not intelligent enough or whatever it is, then we, then we close down that level that we're meant to get into. We keep it very shallow, very happy. And I, I believe that Jesus is the source of all of our joy and the source of our hope, and there is good news there again and again. But the questions need to belong. So I'm going to write them down. This is a safe place. This is a safe place for us to experience like that overwhelming, gracious invitation of, of God. And maybe, um, maybe you have a question. I'm going to write them down, and they're just going to remain. I'm not going to answer them.
this theory that is very widely accepted in the church where um, where, where Jesus had to die, like that, that God had to actually kill his son. Whereas for many of us in the room, when we look at the, the atonement of Christ, when we think of Jesus on the cross, it, from a Trinitarian perspective, it's not God the Father standing over the Son, judging the Son for all the wickedness that you've done. It's God hanging from the cross for us. And so it's a, it's a different mentality. But that is, that is an important question that is no, that's not raised very often. And that's one of the youngest, that's one of the uh, youngest, like meaning it's only been around for a few hundred years, atonement theory. The other atonement theories are much older than that. Yeah, that's good. What other questions? Contentious on yeah. Do people who follow other religions and other gods um, are they following demons? Okay. Yeah.
for me week after week is what is the power in communion? <laughs> like, what a strange thing that we come together around this table every week and we eat something, we ingest something that represents this great mysterious thing of the body and blood of Jesus. It feels so strange. It, and many times people have been accused of being cannibals because of it. Oops, sorry. Being cannibals because of it. There's all sorts of different understandings around it. It is confusing. It is truly a great mystery. And yet in the midst of 
the, of the questions and lack of answers around communion, we still faithfully come. Because we know that the practice of the bread and the juice of ingesting the sacrifice of Jesus into our bodies is something powerful that is beyond an answer. It is beyond an explanation. And sometimes it's that practice of saying, I don't have an answer for this, and it's confusing as heck, is the right place to be. So we're going to worship Jesus. There's communion. The bread represents Christ's body broken for us. The juice represents his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of all of our ever mistakes or anything in our lives to set us back on that path of God's God's movement in the world. We'll sing three songs together, um, and you can worship how you need. You can stand, sit, run through the pews, dance, lay down. This is your time to, to fix your attention on Jesus and join in unison with each other's voices. Amen.